Shadow had been home maybe a month when it happened. The former scout and his wife were out on their small farm, working their crops, after months of him being down in Mexico hunting renegades. That particular day as he worked, he felt his muscles begin to twitch. Without stopping to think, he grabbed his wife and the two of them jumped on a nearby horse and left everything to make it to Fort Apache as quickly as they could. Years later, a fellow Apache would ask him about that day and what had happened. Chato was quick to say that he remembered it distinctly. He was working in his garden when he felt the twitch. This, he knew, was his power. Chato was a religious man, and though he never spoke too much about the power granted him by the Apache deity Usan, he prayed regularly every morning. And his power, usually coming through such muscular twitches, always was a clear sign of danger. So trusting in this, he dropped everything and fled. You can believe what you want to when it comes to the Apache and their religious ideas about power, but much like Geronimo knowing in 1883 that Crook and his men had found their base camp, we have to pause to consider this remarkable prescience. Because there is no doubt that Chato's life was saved that day because he trusted in his power. The Apache who was asking him about this incident was not an idle questioner. Because that Apache, on that very day, November 23rd, 1885, was part of a raiding party led by Usana, the brother of Chihuahua, and the leader of a band cutting a bloody swath across the territory, who was even then sneaking up on Chato's farm. Usana had sworn to kill the former scout leader if he fell into his hands, and Usana and his men were preparing to do just that. And it was only Chato's muscular tremors, or maybe the power granted him from Usan, that kept that from happening. It's too bad that the rest of the Chiricahua, or the settlers of Arizona as a whole, or one Captain Emmett Crawford, weren't so lucky. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 107, The Devil's Backbone. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you'll excuse my voice sounding a little different this week than usual, After two and a half years, I finally caught the plague. Uh, It's a very mild case, and it's more annoying than anything at this point, but here we are. Now, last time we talked about how both Chihuahua and Geronimo decided that they really wanted to get to Fort Apache to find their families, only to discover that their families weren't there and that southern Arizona and New Mexico were lousy with soldiers. That didn't stop Chihuahua and Wilsana from striking into Arizona with a goal of making it to the San Carlos Reservation to find either their families or other allies. And at the same time, these strikes really ratcheted up the political pressure in Washington to find a final solution to the issue of the Apache. So General Philip Sheridan was even then heading west to discuss the final removal of all the Chiricahua once Crook finally beat them into submission. Speaking of which, 
Crook was then preparing for a renewed Mexican campaign despite the raiding happening on the U.S. side of the border. As we mentioned last episode, the original group of scouts that were recruited back in May, which seems a lifetime ago now, were released, so Captains Crawford and Wirt Davis went to the reservation to recruit even more. They found the Chiricahua ready to recover their wayward brethren, though the white mounted Apache were a little harder to persuade. They had played this game before, and more than anything, they just wanted to quit playing it and live at peace. But eventually, new companies of scouts were recruited, and by mid-November, Davis was heading back south again, with Crawford scheduled to follow shortly thereafter. At the same same time, Usana was still in the U.S., having gone quiet for a little bit as he steered his way toward Fort Apache. He did some raiding and pillaging along the way, but was still stealthy enough that he thought he had a legitimate chance of killing Chato as he snuck up on him in late November. After Chato's power robbed him of that chance, he actually stayed in the area, vowing to finish the job if possible, but took the opportunity to kill livestock, take prisoners, and generally strike fear into everybody. Posses of other Apache, including Chato now, went out to find him but had very little luck. At one point, a Sibiku Apache man managed to sneak up on one of Usana's sentries, whom he quickly dispatched and beheaded. He then took the head to Fort Apache to claim the $100 reward that Crook had advertised for renegade Apache scalps. However, what he really did was put a big old target on his back. The rest of the Chiricahua, even those who were settled on the reservation, were angry that the Sibiku man had killed one of their own, and Uzana, as you can probably imagine, was furious. The man was forced into hiding, while his wife and children paid the ultimate price for his actions. And this man would later turn his anger toward the Chiricahua living peacefully on the reservation and start making noise about venting his fury on them, leading Crook and others to give orders to make sure that there was no inter-tribal warfare about to break out. It finally took Chato stepping in to cool tempers and make sure nothing truly regrettable happened. As for Ulsana, he had now lost the advantage of both stealth and surprise, but he was determined to still cause some trouble. After all, this was an Apache raiding party which could melt into and out of the desert as it pleased, crossing what Americans thought of as inhospitable terrain was seemingly no issue. In late November, we know that they cut telegraph wires around the San Carlos Agency and killed a white mountain Apache boy before stealing some horses. But after that, they melted into the desert once again. While Usana and his raiding party was a huge concern for Crook, Another one just landed at his doorstep. Because as I mentioned last episode and at the beginning of this episode, General Sheridan, the head of the entire U.S. Army, had made the ride out to Arizona to confer with Crook about the situation. He found the general at Fort Bowie on November 29, 1885, with Captain Emmett Crawford and roughly 100 Apache scouts. Now, remember from last episode that Sheridan and Secretary of War William C. Endicott had already formed a plan for what to do with the Chiricahua. Remove them all to Florida. And this applied to every Chiricahua, no matter if they were renegades like Geronimo and Chihuahua, loyal scouts like Chato, or hadn't even participated in this whole darn thing, like Loco and Bonito. 
the only decision left was to name the time and method for carrying out this idea. To put it simply, Crook and Crawford were horrified at this decision and both strenuously objected. Crook still believed that the only way to catch an Apache was with Apache scouts, an idea he never wavered on, partially because he saw their usefulness and partially because Crook wasn't exactly known for changing his mind. He and Crawford argued very persuasively that they couldn't ask for the reservation Cherokee to join them as scouts to hunt down the renegades if, in the end, they would all be lumped together and deported. Crook also pointed to the example of Kaitene, the troublemaker who was sent to Alcatraz, saying that he had been a model prisoner. The point being that the Chiricahua just had a few bad apples that needed to be hunted down and punished, but the army couldn't in good conscience exact this punishment on everybody. In, in the end, Sheridan had to relent. He couldn't undercut one of his best officers who was making very reasonable and persuasive arguments. However, he still remained uneasy about the use of Apache scouts. This was both because oh my goodness, we are trusting these savages? And also because he was worried about his finances. The army's budget was shrinking, and the hiring of expensive non-soldier civilians seemed counterintuitive to what needed to be done. So don't expect the specter of mass deportation to Florida to fully go away. This visit did result in one positive benefit for Crook, though. Sheridan took the Department of New Mexico and put it under Crook's direct command. This meant that Crook now oversaw all policy and could dictate orders to the department's commander. General Nelson A. Miles, who had previously overseen New Mexico as part of the Division of the Missouri, was not so happy with this decision, but really anytime Crook got something he wanted, Miles was unhappy. With this meeting over and Sheridan heading back to Washington, it was high time for Crawford and his scouts to also head south across the border. He would cross into Sonora on December 11, 1885, with his company of scouts at his side. And just because writers and storytellers like me love ominous foreshadowing, I will relate that 17 days earlier, while en route to meet with Crook and Sheridan at Fort Bowie, Crawford had stopped at Fort Grant, where he dined with an old friend. During this dinner, Crawford related that he was flattered by the trust Crook showed in him, but he had serious misgivings about campaigning in the Sierra Madres again. Crawford is supposed to have remarked that he had a premonition, quote, that when I go down into Mexico, I will not return, end quote. Cue low mood lighting and stirring minor key Hartfield music. With Crawford now marching toward his destiny, Let's see where everyone else was. So, in October, Geronimo and Nietzsche were together in Sonora, in the Terrace Mountains, and by December they had climbed into a particularly mountainous area between the Arroz and Satachi rivers known as La Espinosa del Diablo, or the Devil's Backbone. Of course, as they moved from one place to another, they raided and pillaged along the way, because why not? In December, they were also joined by Chihuahua, who had returned from raiding in New Mexico, and after spending some time near Casas Grandes, where he had floated peace feelers again, only to have the Mexicans attempt to double-cross them. Again. 
At this point, all the renegades, with the exception of Usana and his men, were gathered in one place, the first time that had happened since May. Meanwhile, Captain Wirt Davis had spent the month of December wandering around Chihuahua, hunting down rumors of the Apache and their movements while reporting his findings to Crook. A lot of these rumors he was chasing turned out to be just that, as it seems that every Mexican he talked to had seen an evil Apache lurking just around the corner. He would write to Crook that the Mexicans he encountered had the mental illness of, quote, Chiricahuas on the brain. And that brings us again around to Crawford, who spent the last half of December following trails and signs himself. But at least his scouts had actually found a trail, that of Chihuahua and his company as they were heading south. Crawford was sending scouting parties ahead of him, and whiled away the last bit of 1885 heading further and further south into Sonora. So let's pause for a moment on December 31st, 1885, to take some stock of the situation. Geronimo, Mangas, Naiche, and Chihuahua had broken out of the reservation on May 17th. Since then, Crook had initiated two campaigns against them, including multiple different companies of scouts. These campaigns at best were mildly successful. The scouts had captured a lot of women and children, but the leading men always managed to escape and indeed became even more hardened. Also, the Americans seemed to have worn out their welcome with the Mexicans, who had started to harass and stymie them whenever they could. Meanwhile, you could say that the renegades maybe had a tiny bit more success. They had launched several raids into the United States that were not successful because they had not recovered their families, but they were successful in that they had brought a lot of pressure down on Crook, and they had managed to kill some of their enemies. But really, we can say that 1885 was sort of a stalemate for the two sides, a far cry from the swift victories that Crook had achieved in 1883 and in 1873. So as January 1st, 1886 dawned, there was still no end in sight. Everyone, including Crook, Crawford, Geronimo, Nietzsche, Chihuahua, and Sheridan, had no way of knowing that the Apache Wars would be ending within a matter of months. Unfortunately, not everyone that I just named will be around to see the end of that war. We'll get into the other person or persons who won't see this through to the end in future episodes, but for now it's time to set up the exit of Captain Emmett Crawford. In the early days of January 1886, Crawford would follow after some of his advanced scouts who were investigating rumors about the whereabouts of Geronimo's camp. During the course of this march, a white mountain Apache shaman held some sort of ceremony about this news, afterward pronouncing that the scouts would end up seeing Geronimo. The trail they followed led, as I mentioned earlier, to an area known as La Espinosa del Diablo, the Devil's Backbone. Crawford and his men had to navigate a maze of canyons and steep ridges, but along the way they kept spotting signs of recent Apache encampments. It was difficult, but they were oh so very close. Around sunset on January 9th, two advanced scouts came into Crawford's camp with incredible news. Geronimo was camped just a dozen miles away. Crawford instantly ordered a night march to get into position to take the camp at dawn. 
Donning moccasins so they would not make any noise, the handful of American officers followed along where the Apache scouts led. For the officers, this was an astounding march, walking on a moonless night through more canyons and rocks, while to the Apache it was just another night hike. Sure enough, Crawford and his company met up with the rest of the advance force shortly before dawn on January 10th, where the captain proposed encircling the camp and then closing the net on the renegade Chiricahua, thus ending the campaign once and for all. And the Chiricahua seemed to have grown complacent in their mountain hideaway, as they had stopped posting guards altogether, despite the fact that they all knew that they were in one place and that the Americans and the Mexicans were after them. However, what they did have was mules. Like we've seen before, the mules were instantly aware of someone creeping around out there, and a number of them began to bray. When three Chiricahua warriors went out to check on the animals, some white mountain scouts, possibly wanting to take revenge for their kinsmen killed by Usana near Fort Apache, opened fire. But while they might have superb nighttime marching skills, these Apaches still didn't have, in Dungeons & Dragons terms, dark vision. So, rolling with disadvantage, they all missed their targets, but the whole camp was suddenly alert. The mules were kept some 400 yards from the main camp, so the renegade Cherokawa had a leg up in fleeing from the not-yet-closed net around them. Geronimo could be heard yelling for the women and children to head toward the Aros River. Gunfire was exchanged between the two sides, but in the darkness, no one managed to hit anything. The scouts tried to give chase, but considering the 12-hour march they just had, the confusion happening all around them, and the distance between them and the renegades, it accomplished very little. But it hadn't been completely in vain. Because, though the 80 Chiricahua had escaped with their lives, that's pretty much all they escaped with. The scouts regrouped in the camp where they found the Chiricahua's herds, food, and blankets. And without those three things, there was no way the renegades could survive a winter up in the mountains. Naiche, seeing their situation, managed to make contact with some of the scouts and learned that it was Captain Crawford who was after them. And they all knew and respected Crawford. He had been tough but fair during his stint overseeing San Carlos, and they all knew that he could be trusted. So during the afternoon of January 10th, a woman appeared in Crawford's camp, saying the chiefs were willing to sit down and talk about returning to the reservation. Crawford fed this woman and sent her back to say that the chiefs should meet him the next day on a plateau about a mile away. He then ordered his men to move out of the abandoned Chiricahua camp and to set up large bonfires to keep the chill out of the air, and then everyone was to get a good night's sleep. The last 24 hours had been draining, but they had been productive. Crawford went to bed that night satisfied that he had done his duty and that he might end this conflict once and for all. What happens next is just another in a long series of fateful twists and misunderstandings that have plagued the story of Geronimo and the Apache rebels since the beginning. The next morning, January 11th, 1886, before anyone in Crawford's camp had their first cup of coffee, shots rang out. 
Crawford and his men were just as in the dark as Geronimo, Nightshade, and the other Chiricahua, that they were not the only ones trying to ferret out Apache renegades. A militia out of the Mexican state of Chihuahua, mostly made up of the feared Tarahumara Indians, had also been in the area. This is the group that had fired into Crawford's camp, eliciting some bullets fired in their direction by some confused scouts. The American officers ran forward, yelling that they were Americans and that the Mexican forces needed to stop firing. After about 15 minutes of intermittent gunplay, the Mexicans finally called a halt and 10 heavily armed men approached the camp, led by Major Mauricio Corredor, who had made a name for himself in the final campaign against Victorio seven years earlier. And I hate to say this, but Corredor is going to fall into the stereotype that has haunted all Mexicans in this podcast. He's plotting treachery. Because of the sporadic return of gunfire from Crawford's camp, he had concluded, erroneously, that the company was small and low on ammunition. So Corredor and his men planned to subdue the American officers at the first chance and then take as many Apache scalps as he could. It didn't matter that these were scouts under American officers and that actual hostile Apache were just a stone's throw away. For men like Corredor, an Apache scalp was an Apache scalp. Meanwhile, Crawford caught up with his officers, holding a white handkerchief, while Corredor tried to apologize for his actions. And it's possible at this point he was having second thoughts about his whole plan. But this is where years of bad blood steps in. Because, as we have mentioned a couple times now, the Chiricahua and the Tarahumara hated each other's guts. The Tarahumara were as good at tracking the Apache as the Chiricahua, and had contributed both to the downfall of Victorio in 1879 and Hua's devastating defeat in 1883. It didn't help that the Tarahumara were as eager as Corredor to turn in Apache scalps for the promised bounty. Their leaders were intense conversations of their own, so the rank and file had no one to check the rising animosity between the two sides. The Tarahumara and the Chiricahua scouts were shouting insults at each other, in general insulting each other's manhood because there was not a single person with two X chromosomes around to cut down on the overload of testosterone. The Mexicans were overheard telling the Tarahumara that the scout's hair was long and thick, perfect for scalping. The Chiricahua yelled out that the Tarahumara shouldn't run away if they were men, because if they came over there, they were going to find men a reference to the women and children the Tarahumara had killed during their earlier victories. The Tarahumara retorted that they had wiped the floor with Victorio and were ready to do it again. The Mexican and American leaders were snapped back to the situation dissolving all around them when they heard the Chiricahua scouts snapping their breech-loading rifles ready to fire. By this point, Corredor was able to get a better picture of Crawford's forces and realized that he had seriously miscalculated. So both sides ran away from the parlay yelling, Don't fire and no tiros! Crawford, waving his white handkerchief, jumped on top of a very large rock to try and grab everyone's attention. 
But this is when the bad thing happened. One of Corrador's men, apparently the one that was supposed to set off the double cross, did exactly that. He took aim at the American officer, prominently placed on the rock, and shot him right through the head. Crawford crumpled to the ground, mortally wounded. Both sides now opened fire, shooting at whomever they could see. The ten-man Mexican force that had been parlaying with Crawford seems to have decided in for a penny, in for a pound, and began firing at the Americans too. Though they had very little success before revenge-minded Chiricahua scouts leapt out of nowhere, and within seconds, nine of those ten Mexicans, including a now thoroughly bullet-ridden corredor, were dead on the ground. Fueled by adrenaline and hatred, the Chiricahua were able to force the Tarahumara to fall back. But this rally was offset by the wounded Crawford, who despite being shot through the skull, was still miraculously breathing. However, everyone knew it was only a matter of time. There's nothing that could be done to save him. Also, we shouldn't forget that the renegade Chiricahua were literally right next door when all this went down. They had been awakened by the sound of gunfire and they watched perplexed as the Tarahumara and the Americans fought each other. It's something of a minor miracle that they didn't run away right then and there. The day after this battle, First Lieutenant Marion P. Moss, who took over command, tried to smooth things over with the Mexicans and Tarahumara by giving them some of the horses the army had confiscated when they had taken the renegade Chiricahua camp. However, because no one can play nice, they actually took Moss captive until the camp sent over documentation saying that he was an American soldier who was allowed to be operating in Mexico. And this incident almost set off more fighting as the Chiricahua scouts started planning what was surely to be a bloody rescue Moss slash kill everyone else mission, which was enough to cow the recently beaten Tarahumaras. They finally begrudgingly left the area, leaving Moss to pick up the pieces and order everyone to start for the U.S. again. However, there was one bright ray of hope here. Geronimo sent an envoy to Moss, asking to meet. On January 15th, four days after Crawford was shot, Moss met with Geronimo, Naiche, Chihuahua, and Nana. Upon being questioned by Geronimo about his intentions, Moss said directly that his orders were to capture or destroy the renegades. Impressed by his forthrightness, Geronimo and the chiefs agreed to meet Crook near the U.S.-Mexico line in one month's time, possibly near the San Bernardino Ranch. And to show they were serious, the next day they sent Nana, a wife and daughter of Geronimo, and a wife and son of Naiche to accompany Moss. And with that, Moss started heading north again. On January 17th, six days after receiving his mortal wound, Crawford opened his eyes. He put his arms around Moss, who tried to assure his dying commanding officer that all his affairs would be taken care of. Crawford could only shake his head before losing consciousness five minutes later. And the very next day, he drew his last breath. The loss of Crawford here is nothing short of a tragedy, both because of the sheer senselessness of his death 
and the horrible timing of it. Had Crawford managed to not be wounded on January 11th, it's entirely possible that Geronimo and the rest would have just come north with him right then and there, and not simply agreed to meet up with Crook in a month. As I said, Geronimo and the others knew and trusted Crawford. They weren't afraid that he would betray them or that he would impose an unnecessarily harsh punishment. Everything that's about to happen in the next few months could have been avoided if only Crawford hadn't been such a conspicuous target. Crawford has been with us since episode 95, where he was put in charge of military matters at the San Carlos Agency. And during all that time, he seems to have genuinely tried to do right by the Apache. Of course, he had a military mind and all the cultural biases of his time, but he was not one of those people urging authorities to utterly wipe out the Amerindians under his charge or, you know, send them to Florida. It's hard to find a single word spoken against him, and the only thing that I could find that's sort of a black mark is his inability to work with Indian agent Charles Ford after he replaced the perennially troublesome Indian agent Philip P. Wilcox. And frankly, the loss of such a capable, fine officer after his own heart was a devastating blow to Crook. The general fumed privately about the Mexicans that had killed the captain, swearing that if he had been there, he would have made them pay. In General Field Order Number 2, he announced Crawford's death by saying, quote, With feelings of deepest sorrow, the Brigadier General Commanding announces the death of Captain Emmett Crawford, 3rd Cavalry. His loss is irrepressing. Brave as a lion, tender and gentle as a woman, always averse to alluding to his own achievements, temperate, noble, and wise, who was during his life an honor to his profession and in death is an example to his comrades, end quote. But Crook could only eulogize the fallen captain for so long because Geronimo had actually agreed to meet. The end of the Apache Wars unexpectedly seemed within sight, though sadly for the general, there was still a few more major twists and turns yet to come. So join me next week as we gear up for the fateful meeting in March 1886 when Crook would come within spitting distance of actually bringing Geronimo in. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.